When mistfall comes, the sun is swallowed whole. By skyborne darkness, the world turns to cold. When mistfall comes, the globe transforms its face. Gray fog clouds probe. They reach to every place. When mistfall comes, the giants leave the swamp. The marshmen walk the world. The forest lands they haunt. When mistfall comes, the planet that has slept awakes, unleashing terror, bringing death if you forget. <laughs> Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature. The podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who podcast network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. This week we end the eSpace trilogy by visiting the first book in the eSpace trilogy, which was the last book published, even though it was the first story aired, Full Circle. My guest this week, once again, is Jim Sangster. Jim is now given a permanent producer credit on this show. He has provided our snazzy new logo, about which we'll talk in a few minutes. He also provided the Vincent Price-inspired dramatic reading of Andrew Smith's poem that opens the Full Circle novelization. Jim is a terrific guest and a great friend. I am lucky to know him. This show is lucky to have him both as a contributor and as a creative genius. In other podcast news, you can find me on the most recent episode of Gallifrey's Most Wanted. Ross had me on as a guest. That episode dropped yesterday as I released this on Sunday, April 16th. We were talking about a seventh Doctor story, the novelization of which is not coming up on this show until pretty much the end of the run, probably about two years from now. But we're talking about a TV story, so I do encourage you to check that out, not just because I'm on it, but because Gallifrey is Most Wanted is a terrific show, and I will have a link to that in the show notes. As I am recording this bit, it is April 15th in America, a date with heavy historical significance. It is the date that President Abraham Lincoln died the morning after he was shot by John Wilkes Booth late the night before. It is the day of the sinking of Titanic. It is the day that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball right here in Brooklyn, playing for the then Brooklyn Dodgers, a short walk from where I live now. But I have more recent history on my mind. I want to briefly play you a clip from last week's episode, episode 70, when Mark from Trap One and I were discussing Doctor Who and the Visitation. This is not 
anything at all like the Eric Sayward that we are going to come to know very well between season 19 and season 23. This is early days for Eric. And this is not going to be his typical Doctor Who story at all. That's what I said last week. In the interim, the writer James Corey Smith on his Doctor Who-themed substack wrote an essay about the visitation, which reaches the exact opposite conclusion that I reached last week. Now, you'll hear me talk about James Corey Smith's substack a little bit later in this program with reference to Full Circle. I read the article that is quoted later, and I wrote my bit in the Full Circle essay before his article about the visitation which came out just a few days ago as I write this. It's a very good substack. I will link to it in the show notes. His point about the visitation is, is that it is Eric Sayward in terms of the Doctor losing an argument with the antagonist, in terms of the episode opening with a massacre. He writes in his substack that the only reason why it doesn't appear to be as nihilistic as Eric Sayward's later work is because it's being directed by Peter Moffat, who was not quite as atmospheric a director as some of the later directors who would tackle Eric Sayward's work. It's a very good point, and again, that'll be linked to in the show notes. It is a very interesting counterpoint to what Mark and I discussed last week. Excellent substack. The most recent article that came out is about the web planet, so I've now referenced three of his articles. Go check them out. After you hear this episode, this is going to be a long one, so I want to thank you very much for hanging in there with me with my long episodes. Jim and I will have an extended conversation, and of course, a game of 20 questions, and then I will have a thorough full-length breakdown of the full circle novelization, which I enjoy tremendously. Lastly, as a reminder, I am still accepting submissions for my Five Doctors episode which is a little less than three months from now, looking for an audio essay between two and five minutes, your reminiscences of The Five Doctors, the television episode, and or the novelization, however you see fit. I do have some submissions already in. They're excellent. Looking forward to hearing what else you guys are going to come up with. But for now, let's turn our attention back to Full Circle. Let's get to it. Do you collect Doctor Who? Do you have Doctor Who items and you don't know that you collect Doctor Who? For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Versbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who for 41 years. We have popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer. Anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature and Whatever You Do, Keep turning the pages. All right, Jim Sangster, welcome back. We have a lot to talk about today, but the first thing I want to talk about is not Doctor Who full circle, but matters of design. You are wearing one of your self-designed t-shirts, but I can't quite make out if that, I don't believe that's a Doctor Who reference. It's not, no, it's um, Hot Fuzz. Uh, it's Nick Frost and... Uh, I put this on because I thought it'd be appropriate for you. It's he's saying, you're not Judge Judy and Executioner. <laughs> so uh, that's up on my Redbubble shop, if uh, if anyone's interested in getting a copy of that. 
I have very, very distant Brooklyn slash Jewish geography ties to Judge Judy. She would not have the slightest idea who I am. I don't really. I only know her from. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I kind of know of her, uh, but I never really watched the show. Uh, the, the closest reference I can get to that is um, RuPaul's Drag Race, where Bianca Del Rio did an impression of her. So I just want to shout baloney and hope that that's appropriate. I don't know. Well, as the latest uh, Doctor Who companion slash series regular slash role to be determined is an alumni or alumna i should say of uh rupaul's drag race i was listening to um your previous episode and i thought it was just it was funny just hearing two people going we don't we don't know who they are <laughs> and i was i was thinking i'm on the next episode and i know really well <laughs> so <laughs> Um, but um, yeah, I'm very happy about that casting. Jinx Monsoon is an incredible talent, and I can't wait to find out who they're playing. So it'll be amazing. Yeah, uh, not someone that I had heard of. RuPaul's Drag Race is not a show that's in my very limited live TV viewing time as opposed to uh, reruns. But I am aware that they were in Chicago on Broadway not too long ago, which I have seen. And that's a terrific role to play so that's obviously somebody who has major league talent and also just being in in rupaul's drag race um jinx monsoon changed the show it was very much about pageant skills uh in the first few years and then in series four you got a goth um horror um fan who, who did a lot of um ugly drag really inventive creative ugly drag and then in series five you get jinx monsoon who's um She's a showgirl, and she's performing you know, performing arts major, and um, really funny, and just changed. That's what success could look like. Suddenly, the funny girls could be the ones who'd win. So, um, and and made the show better as a consequence. Suddenly, they had greater goals. So you might not be able to walk the walk, or you might not be able to make the the dresses, but you can be funny, and that's a skill that some of them really don't have. And my understanding is that the stage name Monsoon derives via Absolutely Fabulous. So there's a bit of a BBC connection in there. I believe so, yeah, yeah. Um, Eddie Monsoon. So um, I think, as you mentioned last time, you know, she's, she's, they've, they've clearly got um, great influences <laughs> if they're, if they're <laughs> digging deep. But although I, I believe that was really huge in certain communities, um, I was surprised that Mark didn't really know it, but that, you know, it's, it's just something that. Um, I've got, to, I've got to remember that Mark's a bit younger than than I am. So Mark is even younger than me. I'm a couple of years behind you, but Mark is several years behind both of us. Which I think is obscene. How dare he? It is funny how four or five years, there can be a complete turnover in pop culture references. Yeah. If I mean, born in the early 70s versus the late 70s, it's a completely different set of shared cultural facts. I was just thinking that earlier about about the story that we're here to discuss because if you say to a Doctor Who fan, uh, or if, if if someone says to you and they're a Doctor Who fan, they say, "Oh, my earliest memory is the one where the monsters come out of the water." They could be an older fan who remembers the Sea Devils. It could be Full Circle, or it could be Curse of Fenric. Right. Um, it's it's unlikely to be a modern episode, isn't it? They don't really do that. We've had Sea Devils, and that's about it. Right. I was thinking perhaps the Orphan 55 creatures, which seem to have been derived from Curse of Fenric, but they never really rise out of the water. Yeah. They emerge from the mist. 
which is a form of water. So there you go. <laughs> it's it's floaty, floaty water. <laughs> While we are still on the subject of design, this is the second week of my new logo, which I have you to thank for. So I will say that I designed my logo pretty much in about nine minutes using every Photoshop skill that I have, which is not considerable. And that was during the very brief window of time when my podcast was called The History of Doctor Who Literature, which I stole from the History of Literature podcast before realizing, wait a minute, that is a monetized podcast with a sponsor. Perhaps I want to go in a less copyright infringy direction. So in between the recording of the trailer and the designing of the logo and the release of my first episode, which was a six-day span, I cut the title in half to Doctor Who Literature, which I think is a much better, more neat and compact title, but the old logo remained. And again, this is downloading the cover of Doctor Who and the Cybermen, my 1984 edition, cropping out the logo, and then typing text in whatever font Photoshop happened to suggest. Dusting my hands off in satisfaction, <laughs> uploading the file to Anchor and saying, I designed my own logo. As time went on, I became very sick of looking at this logo. And you, of course, have been sharing a lot of your illustrations with me for uh, some of the target novelizations. And I know that you have considerably more artistic skill than I will <laughs> ever have. So I asked you very politely, please, please, please give me a new logo. And you obliged very quickly. So what was your thought process in the design that you gave me? Which is amazing, by the way. Well, the, the first thought was, wait, what? I've got the name of your podcast wrong for 80-odd <laughs> episodes? At, uh, <laughs> it really threw me. And um, I've recorded a few things for future episodes that we won't go into, but they included the name of the podcast. And so I had to go back and re-record those because I'm a I'm nitpicky. Uh, so um, when they're eventually unveiled, um, when I mentioned the name of the podcast, that was the second version because the first one had the old title. Um, so yeah, th th what I wanted was something that felt targety, felt like the books that we're talking about without it necessarily being um, a specific reference. So, you know, using the same color palette for the concentric circles, um, Having uh, a lozenge in the middle, which um, I thought just worked quite well because it made it look a bit like uh, a London Underground um, yes. roundel. And then there's a little curve of a page because one of your catchphrases is keep turning the pages. So there's a little curve in the corner of the of the page with dots. So I used a, um, a color half tone to, to create the dots in the shadows um, just to give a hint of um, Chris Sakaleos and the, those um, pointillist pictures. So that was, the, that was the thought process, really. I would never have been able to duplicate that either by thought or by design, <laughs> so I cannot thank you enough for the fabulous new logo. We've already heard in this episode one of your contributions, but I will say that you've recorded material for a couple of podcasts that we are not due to record for months and months. So I have a dedicated folder of gym creations that I need to use at X episode, but I can't touch them for several months, which is frustrating. I want to show them to the world now, but they will have to wait. And so will you, dear listener. And um, there's one that you haven't got yet. And I'm I'm meeting someone tomorrow who's going to be the singer on the, the item in question, because um, one of the episodes we'll be discussing in the future needs a theme tune. So I've written you a theme tune. Ooh. <laughs> 
which is specific to this one book. Um, and I did guide vocals on it. And I can hold the tune, but um, I need someone with a powerful voice. So I'm I'm meeting up with um, Wales's greatest singer tomorrow, and uh, he'll he's going to be doing the vocals for it. But that'll be revealed at some point in the future. <laughs> yes, I have you booked through to the end of the program, which is about two years from now. And I will not say which episodes you are on, but some of them lend themselves very, very well to vocalists. So future plans aside, we are here today to talk about Full Circle, which takes me back to season 18, one of my favorite seasons. I think six of the seven stories I rank very, very highly. Where does season 18 fit in for you? Because I imagine by this point you were watching the show on first run. Yes. Um, I saw every episode of this series, and um, I was very excited at the time. I was so excited because we had a new theme tune, um, <clears throat> a new look for the Doctor, and um, my best friend at the time uh, was also a Doctor Who fan, so we were sort of competitively trying to read all the books. There was one time when he actually literally stole a book out of my hand and ran up to sign it out from the library before I could. Oh, wow. Um, he, he was he was a monster. Um, <laughs> that's why he was my best friend. Um, so... This was I, I had a tape recorder and I recorded theme tunes. I collected theme tunes that I liked on the TV, and I tried for weeks to record the theme tune. And my mum spoke over the recording, or um, the continuity announcer spoke over the end theme, and so I I couldn't get the end theme. And I I seem to remember that Full Circle was the first one I was able to record without a continuity announcer talking over the end of it. But that might be a false memory. It's really interesting you mentioned that because. I had many Doctor Who items in 1991 when I went off to college, but I did not have a copy of the theme tune. And for me, the Peter Howell version is the version because it was my first. It's the only one that I, well, it's the one that I love above all the others. But I went away to college in mid-1991, and I did not have a copy of the theme tune with me. And I did not go back to my childhood home for three months until Thanksgiving break 1991. That was the same weekend that I bought my first two new adventures. But I also grabbed the nearest VHS tape that I had, and I grabbed one of those old-fashioned plug-in tape recorders, and I taped the closing theme on audio from the nearest cassette tape that I had to hand, and I had that on a mixtape for the next several years until the end of the mixtape era, right around the time that Napster came around. And on Napster, I was able to get all the versions of the theme song and all the audios to all the 1960s stories that were then missing, the late lamented Napster. But I had the closing theme to the end of part two of Full Circle, which I used <laughs> as answering machine background music until my roommate, who was not a fan at all, <laughs> probably got rid of it. But I came in too early on the recorder. So it's the bit where the spiders are attacking Romana before the theme sting. So I realized when you hear it just on audio, it sounds like somebody crinkling cellophane in front of the microphone. They're only spiders. So that's my that's my last that's that's the version of the theme that I've heard more than any other because I played that tape over and over again my freshman year of college. <laughs>
So by the time we get to full circle, and also the, the excitement of a new companion, um, you know, it's it, it, we'd had the same companion technically for three seasons. Uh, so something new. Um, I can't have been a real fan because I was so excited that everything was new. Um, and also my best friend was really upset because when, um, I think we had, even though it hadn't been announced, I think we suspected that Tom Baker was probably going to be leaving and this would probably be his last year. Um, and when they make him old in the Leisure Hive, my mate John was really upset. He said, oh, he can't be the next Doctor. Because, of course, they'd never regenerate the Doctor into the same actor again, would they? That would be ridiculous to do that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Full, uh, Full Circle was the one I got the most excited about that season because it had monsters in. And as I might have mentioned before, I watched Doctor Who for the monsters. Um, and they're really good monsters as well. The, uh, the the Marsh people are fantastic. The masks are great. The, co- the, the costumes are great. Until about episode four, when until until part four, when you can see they're sort of cracking at the seams a bit, but they, yes. they look fantastic and the noises are fantastic. Um, I had a cassette of sound effects which I bought just because it had sound effects from um, season eighteen of Doctor Who, and I seem to remember that had the um, the marsh the marshmen on that as well. And that, that's just a load of pig noises. So uh, apparently when Dick Mills recorded them, he, he went to a pig farm and recorded them live and, and uh, then said people knew where I was in the building every every time I was in because they could smell me. <laughs> so speaking of the Marshmen, I'm holding up the cover now. I have the 1984 edition. This is the third printing. So these books were going through a printing a year. It didn't occur to me until very recently, but superficially, this is the Marshmen coming out of the mist. It may be the part one cliffhanger moment. But when you look a little bit closer, the Marshman has suspicious white pockets directly over the chest area, symmetrical, one on each side. So it occurred to me, I've been watching a lot of horror movies lately, and a lot of horror movies made in this decade consciously are quoting from The Shining, which for anyone of our age is probably the seminal horror movie. So... This reminds this pose reminds me very specifically of the room 237 sequence in The Shining, where the lady comes out of the bathrobe and turns into a hag and starts slowly walking towards Jack Nicholson with this exact same pose and the exact same leer and the same two symmetrical white pockets representing something else. <laughs> so I'm wondering if this 1982 painting did not in some way derive not only from full circle but we know that the uh, the painters also the artists also use reference material from other places i'm wondering if this is not perhaps a backdoor homage to the shining wow i I, i'd never thought of that um in my head because it's such a beautiful painting i've always assumed it was based on a a very specific um photo reference which for the life of me, I can't quite place at the moment. But I, I thought it was based on a specific photo reference. Um, but it, it's possible that the photo reference was also referencing The Shining in the pose. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you could be right. Like the cover painting to The Hand of Fear is a photo reference from Planet of Evil. Yeah. And the cover painting to Turlow and the Earthling Dilemma is a reference painting from Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. So these other things do have a way of... Uh, merging seamlessly into the cover art and that's some a trick i learned and I, I do the same thing you know quite often when i'm doing my little illustrations the face might be from one photo reference and the body might be from another and um i've even made plasticine figures 
um, so, so I'll have a reference of my own and I can create the pose I want. Um, so I've, I've got a lump of clay just here and I always use it for modeling right, right next to me. So quite often when I'm on a Zoom call with work, um, and I'm only on audio. I'm just <laughs> mo modeling away, making something out of, out of um, out of clay. And when we were recording uh, with with Mark from Trap One, I was recording Unearthly Child a couple of months ago, and I had the Andrew Skilleter painting, and he had the Blue Spine edition. And what neither of us knew at the time is that the Blue Spine cover painting to Unearthly Child is actually a David Bowie reference, which I had not been aware of at the time. The two faces merging together at the halfway point. Again, that that is actually it's a Queen reference. That's what Andrew. Uh, okay. But, yes. Yeah, but uh, I don't know if the Queen one is a reference to David Bowie as well. I I could be I could be wrong. It could be Queen. I may be misremembering. There is an intersection between the two of them, thanks to Under Pressure. Maybe that might be it. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's uh, I, I know for a fact that Alistair Pearson's one. He he um he was referencing a Queen album because you've got the four faces lined up um yeah I, I love the alistair pearson cover i love most of the alistair pearson co covers i think the you know the, the photorealism works really well some of the covers at, at this point i think get a bit lazy because of that rule where you you're not allowed to do an out of time doctor right uh and at this point peter davison's the doctor so of course they're just going to mainly focus on the monster the only time they cheat on that is for Megalos, because the monster is also Tom Baker, so you can get away with it. In cactus form, yes. Yeah, and I, 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 do, I do find the um, some of them are a bit bland. They're a bit sort of, they, they might have a very nice painting, but it's, it's a painting of one thing. It's quite simple. Uh, what I like about the uh, full circle one is that you've got three of the Marshmen coming up and through the mist, and it's, uh, it's just got a little bit more depth. Right, plus we haven't talked much about the color scheme. I do have a friend who shelves his novelization. You know, some people shelve the novelizations in story order. Some people shelve the novelizations in publication order. Some shelve them in numerical order. We are entering the end of the time when Target assigned the numbers in alphabetical order until a certain point when they just started being the newest book out the highest number. So I have a friend who shelves the book in rainbow flag order. So Love starting it. with red and cycling on. So as a kid, I was very interested in what color was assigned to which novelization, because when you're looking at them in story order for most of the Pertwee and Tom Baker eras, it's just straight white covers all the way across, with the exception of the yellow spine reprint of Ark in Space and the Sunmakers, which comes from around this era of the show. And then once you get to the end of season 17, everything is in color again in story order until you reach Attack of the Cybermen. So the orange for Full Circle is a pretty striking color, and it's one of the colors that I enjoy looking at. So I think this is a stunningly designed cover for my very poor sense of art design. But the orange spine definitely stands out for me all these years later. And because I've kept the books in a packing case out of the sun, the orange has not faded and it's still as vibrant as it was in 1985 or six when I would have bought this. It's the Sunmaker's orange as well. It is uh, not quite as vivid as this, if memory serves me right. It's more of a matte orange, if I can say that. That's not a detail. I, I, I just literally thought I should have charted that in, in my blog, but I, I never bothered because uh, I don't have the physical books anymore. So um, it wouldn't be something to check. 
Although I remember the when I I was given a load of um, secondhand copies of of books many many years ago, and I got three different copies of Curse of um, Peladon, and all three of them had different spine colours. It was quite yes. exciting. So uh, I think I, I kept one, gave one to a friend, and then um, I don't know I don't know what happened to the third one. <laughs> and for me, of course, in the states there was a sort of unwritten agreement that Target would not ship to the states any book that was available commercially as a pinnacle. And that ended in the mid to late 80s. So seven of the 10 targets I only have as pinnacles. And that, of course, changes the game because the pinnacles were black. So for me, there's a big cluster of seasons 12 and 13 where I have black covers rather than whatever the color of the spine would have been, probably white at that point in the era. And I suppose uh, your friend with the uh, the rainbow uh, collection has got a lot of blue. <laughs> Maybe. Absolutely, yes. I'll have to have him on the show at some point, but that's definitely <laughs> an interesting topic of conversation. So, uh, again, full circle for me is just we're getting to the point in the show where Christopher H. Bidmead is kind of remaking the show in his own image. So the scripts become a lot more hard science. And that's especially true. We know now from full circle that a lot of the science would not have been in Andrew Smith's original proposal bid me put it in and i found that stuff fascinating at the time and to this day i'm still exhilarated by some of the scientific references in the story i'll talk about this later during my audio essay but i have never been more excited to hear the expression you could try gel electrophoresis (laughs) that line works so much better than it has any right to work perhaps because of the person who delivered it and the way it's delivered but this is also the moment when the ratings essentially get cut in half. And this was Doctor Who's last gasp as a once-a-week show for several years. And this is the last time that Doctor Who was a full 26-week season ever. So season 18, in a way, almost broke the show as high quality as I find it. And as much as I love some of the stories, this is the moment when Doctor Who goes from a tentpole to an embarrassing little niche. It's a real shame as well, and it's it's all because of the weird way the British television works. So, the on the on the the other side, as it's known, ITV, um, wasn't one channel. It was a load of different networks, um, a load of different local stations that were in one big network, and they didn't always show the same thing at the same time. So, all of a sudden, most of the networks decided to show Book Rogers at the same time, and suddenly, they have a hit because it looks spectacular and it's really exciting. So it's not just that people tuned out from Doctor Who because they preferred Book Rogers. It's just that every network was showing Book Rogers, as opposed to some would be showing Tarzan, some would show Land of the Giants or whatever. So it was always very fragmented. And then suddenly, and it, it took them about another decade or so to work out that maybe they should consolidate their, their networks and show the same thing at the same time. Ironically, the repeat of Full Circle, um, which was in the, in the summer of 81, I think. Um, w- episode 4 got higher ratings than any of the original transmission, but it also got higher chart positions. And it would have been higher still, but for one of the quirks of local um, opt-outs on the BBC. So BBC Wales didn't show the repeats. They, oh. showed, they showed repeats of Dad's Army. Um, so as a consequence of that, that the ratings might have been higher all the way through uh, on the repeat compared to the the original broadcast. 
Wow. So, again, it's definitely not an issue with story quality. It's not a matter of Christopher H. Bidmead's tone turning off the audience. No, the, the audience didn't tune in in the first place, so they don't know. Right. They don't know things have changed. Yeah, because Le- Leisure Hive, I think, had less than 5 million viewers apart, and that was the first season premiere. Yeah. I think as fans, we often get a bit overly obsessive about the meaning of ratings. Um, often low ratings are, are used to judge a story, but how could people have an opinion on a story if they haven't tuned in to watch it in the first place? It's absolutely... Right. And also, people forget that um, TV ratings can be affected by things like, is it a sunny day? The lowest rated story of um, series one is The Empty Child. Nobody tuned in for it because it was a really sunny day and people were just enjoying the sun because we get so little of it in the UK. <laughs> so, <laughs> What's that big bright thing in the sky? Oh, we must go out and look at it. So, uh, yeah, often when fans go, I think you'll find that was a very low rated story. It, it's not, that's not a, a sign of quality. That's just you imposing your opinion on some numbers. <laughs> the, the numbers are immaterial. If there was something on the other side, people would tune in and watch it on the other side. Case in point, two of Doctor Who's highest rated serials ever were Web Planet and Underworld. And in Which... a just world where viewership was 100% correlated to quality, perhaps that might not be the case. But they were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit different with um, Web Planet because it's literally a binary choice. You're either watching the BBC or you're watching ITV. Nowadays, there's so much choice and people panic about the ratings. And it's amazing that Doctor Who has still got solid ratings with like a good solid 5 million viewers tuning in because they've got this kind of habit and they want to, you know, they want, they want to see those shows. Um, whereas, so it's, Doctor Who is kind of getting the same ratings it was getting in the, the late eighties when there was still a lot less competition. Whereas soap operas have, have been destroyed you know, they've they've um, like a quarter of the ratings that they used to get because people have just lost the habit of tuning into a soap opera. We we watched Coronation Street religiously, and and now I don't think I don't watch it. My parents don't watch it. Um, I, I don't know many people who do. EastEnders has still got quite an ardent following among a few people, but even that, you know, the ratings are fairly low. Moving this conversation back onto coming full circle back to the episode called Full Circle. <laughs> this has a stunning guest cast and i wondered if you wanted to comment about some of the performers who are playing the deciders because i think for my money this is some of the best secondary and tertiary characters that we get throughout the run of the show and their lines are primarily being written by a 17 year old fan and he's giving them incredible dialogue which some writers twice his age would struggle to produce and the actors that are hired to read the lines, just knocking it out of the park. I mean, it's also got a huge um, cast generally because when you see the um, the scenes around the uh, the lake in Black Park, you've got a massive number of extras. Um, I think it's probably got one of the biggest casts I've ever seen because when um, you have Draith saying "citizens, citizens" and he's calling them together, there's a lot of people on that on that shoot. It's yes. amazing. It, it it's one of the, it looks unlike most Doctor Who's where the whole population is represented by about three people, and they just swap wigs. Um, this has actually got it feels populated. It feels like there's a lot of people. So we have Leonard Maguire playing Decider Drake. It's a small part. He's uh, killed off before the end of part one, but he gives a very natural and pained performance. This is a man carrying very heavy secrets 
and yet he gets killed trying to save Adric. And I think the script is trying to imply they have a closer connection than is ever stated on screen. Although it's never obviously made clear what his relation to Adric is, whether he was a stepfather or something else. Or just a teacher or an advisor. Because he's, he's the leaders of the elite. So, and Adric is, uh, is marked out as an elite as well, isn't he? So maybe, maybe he's, he's just, he sees something in Adric as a future decider. Yes. Although the book tells us that they have, um, what was the phrase they use? They, they have some sort of brain scan. The electroencephalogram. That's the one. <laughs> uh, to decide whether or not you get to be an elite or not, which uh, I think was quite an interesting little development. I wonder, of the, uh, of the 40, of the, of the 4,000 generations, I wonder at what point that became an essential part of their society. True. And what had Leonard McGuire done before Doctor Who? We've discussed this before, but for a lot of these actors, Doctor Who is the only thing I know them from. A little bit different in this story, of course, but Leonard McGuire, I don't believe I've seen in anything else. Leonard McGuire is an interesting one. He's not a particularly famous actor, but um, he's one of these people who pops up in a lot of things. And one of the things he popped up in, in a very small role, was The Palaces, which is the, the big Anthony Trollope adaptation that the BBC did a few years before this and JNT worked on that and had a great time so much so that every opportunity he got he cast someone from the palaces we'll see this again with um, Warrior's Gate um, there's, and then we'll see it uh, also in Keeper of Traken uh, two prominent members of the cast of Keeper of Traken are from the palaces and by the time we get to Black Orchid the entire cast pretty much is from the palaces and it's uh, it's a lovely little game you can play during the JNT era. I think there's about eighteen or so, eighteen different actors who he knew through the palaces. You know, my mother watched the palacers when it cycled through on PBS. So during one of many, many, many nights that I was watching the Five Doctors on VHS, she recognized Philip Latham. And looking at the palacers guest cast, I'm pretty sure that's where she recognized him from. Yeah, he's. Uh... It's a fun little game. I mean, I, I do this all the time anyway, but, you know, when you're watching old TV, old British TV, and you go, <laughs> you look at them and go, yeah, they, they were in um, they were in Warrior's Gate or, you know, they, they were in um, the war games or whatever. It's, it's, it, that's what um, ADHD looks like as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and it extends as well to the next member of the guest cast that I want to talk about. Full Circle, I think, is unique among Doctor Who stories and that it has two actors from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is probably one of the, if not the best, James Bond movies ever. And it has James Bree, who has a small part, and then it has James Bond himself, George Baker, who is the voice of George Lazenby for 30 minutes of the picture. Yeah, he plays... It's been a while since I've seen it, but he plays the... um... Basically, the fellow from Ancestry.com, doesn't he? He's, he's the heraldry the genealogist, guy. yes. Yeah. Uh, and then James Bond is supposed to be mimicking him, so we get George Baker doing the voice, which is a very strange choice. I wonder if that was a sign that they, they didn't have confidence in George Lazenby, or I don't know what's going on with that choice. But um, it's funny because um, James Bree and George Baker tend to pop up in the same things quite a lot as well. They're both in I, Claudius as well. Mm. 
Um, I think everybody was an I Claudius, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and James Bree was also in one of my obsessions and Pete Lambert's obsessions as well, Secret Army. Um, a heartbreaking, amazing regular um, role in the first series of Secret Army. Um, I, I, I really love James Bree. I think he's amazing. James Bree was one of the first guest cast members that I became obsessed with because he's on the show four times. He has a bonkers part in Warrior's Gate. Hi, this is Jason from the future, just dipping back in time for a quick correction. Jason meant to say the War Games and not Warrior's Gate. Sheesh. And in fact, I have your Jim Sangster's Security Chief t-shirt, which I bought from your Redbubble, with James Bree looking at the uh, person opposite the wearer saying, no, what a stupid fool you are. What a stupid fool you are. Which I happened to be wearing when I got Chris Chibnall's autograph at Galley six weeks ago, and he did not take it personally to his credit. <laughs> and he's in this, but it's the exact opposite of the performance he was giving as the security chief. He then is in a smaller part in the last two episodes of Trial of a Time Lord, and then he comes back straight to video in the 1990s and plays a much older version of a character from Abominable Snowmen in <sighs> Downtime. I thought you were going crazy then, because I was thinking, is four? Four appearances? Is only oh, I've forgotten that. I've forgotten that completely. That was weird. <laughs> uh, downtime is canon because it was turned into a Mark Platt novel for the Missing Adventures range, which means I will probably will be covering it at the very end of the show or maybe in a bonus episode. But James Bree was one of many familiar Doctor Who faces who came back to, to appear in Downtime. Again, that's something I've not watched in a long time. I know I've watched all of those um, fan-made videos, and they all had a, a similar sort of pace. Uh, they, I don't think they quite understood how to make um, things look faster and pacey with editing. They're all quite static, but, but they're enjoyable, I think. It was David Spencer who had played the character in the 1960s. David Spencer was the partner of Victor Pemberton, who was the script editor for that story. But James Bree takes on the role to play the old man version of the character in 1994 or 1995 or whenever it was that downtime got made. What's your take on James Bree in this particular story? Because for me, it just doesn't get better. I think that, the, I mean, you said at the, the top of this, the cast is fantastic. I, I love those scenes when the deciders are not deciding. <laughs> and they should, they should really be renamed the ditherers. Um, and then that whole thing of, you're a decider now, George Baker. You decide. <laughs> it's yes. really sneaky. And you think, these these people are supposed to be sophisticated. They're the elite. They're the best. And I have a theory. I have many theories about this story, but I have a theory that when the Doctor meets the elites and realizes that they're absolutely rubbish and he's tempted to leave them to their fate, it's just like, oh, whatever happens, I'm done with you. And it's only when Romana says... If we leave them here, they'll do untold damage to the planet. And he's like, okay, I'll help you get away. I'll help you go. <laughs> get you out there. <laughs> but I don't think that the... Uh, I, I, I've got a theory that the Doctor is not acting in the best interests of the Starliner civilization um, in the decisions he makes in that story. I'll explain that shortly. 
one of the best insults that the Tom Baker doctor ever gives is when the Alan Rowe character, we'll come back and talk about Alan Rowe in a moment, when he is protesting that the Starliner citizens are nothing like the Marshmen, the doctor goes, I suppose not. The Marshmen are adaptive, intelligent. And in the book, it goes on for a couple more words, and you get Nefred's, uh, sorry, Gareth's appalled reaction. But it's a great sneaky insult. It doesn't sound like an insult, but it is. Great Tom Baker delivery. Reputedly, this is the story where everything falls apart between Tom and Lala as well. So it's fun watching the, the scenes, and you think, is this Tom acting, or is he just still in a bad mood from lunchtime? Because <laughs> he's... Uh... <laughs> But whatever it is, his confrontation with the deciders, and I'll play the audio a little bit later in part three, that goes through my head at least a couple of times a week. It's it's funny, though, as well, because you get these really experienced actors like George Baker, James Bree, Alan Rowe, and then you get the juveniles. And apart from June Page, for obvious reasons, um, the juveniles all auditioned for Adric, mm. um, as did, I think, Gary Russell, auditioned i think i think that was one of the huh. uh and it was at the point when he started getting really frustrated because he wasn't getting the parts he, he wanted to get um but there's this lovely story that apparently during the uh the recording during the studio sessions um bernard padden and matthew waterhouse revealed to each other that they were doctor who fans and then they realized that they were repeating destiny of the daleks that night so they snuck off and watched that during one of the breaks Bernard Patton mentions that in the making of documentary on the original DVD, not the Blu-ray, but the, uh, I guess the 2007, 2008 DVD. I recall that vividly. Yeah. It was, um, I'm just going to do a, a massive name drop clang here. So, uh, I was at a party around, uh, Toby Haydock's house and, uh, <laughs> and he'd invited Bernard Padden. <laughs> So I was, I was, and um, I was sitting talking to Toby's producer because Toby was working for Radio Four Drama, and his producer Charlotte was talking about the fact that she wants to get Northern voices onto Radio Four because it can be very sort of um, London centric. And um, I said that's a very admirable thing getting Northern voices because I mean there's somebody sitting on this couch who knows what that's like when you're told that you can't have a Northern voice in space, can you, Bernard? And he's like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> and then I got I got him to explain to her that uh, you know that JNT's policy of apparently not every every planet has a North in JNT's universe, and uh, the one of the reasons why he missed out on getting Adric was um, JNT didn't like his Mancunian accent. Hmm. which when you watch him in the show, it does slip in a few times. Like he, he, he's very good at keeping it neutral, but occasionally like he'll say, Oh, have we got different rules for your brother? And yes. you can hear the flat Northern bells, but uh, unless you want to make special rules for your brother. I think it's, it's funny as well because they're supposed to be these rebellious, this rebellious gang, but, um, in the same way that the deciders are are not actually decisive, the outlers don't feel like they're rebellious. They're just a bunch of uh, stage school kids poncing about in the woods with bright coloured uh, jerkins on, and it, it, it they don't quite seem as as um, aggressive as maybe they would be scripted to be. Um, it's all it's all a, a little bit like um, um, high stakes in the rehearsal room uh, in a in a local drama group. 
But that's, I think, a problem with a lot of BBC TV at the time. Again, it's it's very London-centric and it's very kind of theatrical. In the novelization, I'll get to this later, Tylos is almost a latent psychopath, almost a serial killer in training, until his heroic death scene. Um, Varsh, much more of a grown-up than anybody else, um, he gives a very strong performance, and then, of course, he also does not make it to the end. The science unit sequence in Part 4 is basically Tom Baker auditioning several new companions at once. Then June Page has companion potential, but obviously with Tegan and Nyssa coming on board, I guess they ended up going with a June Page type rather than June Page herself. Uh, yeah. I genuinely think that Matthew Waterhouse is the best of the bunch as well. You know, when there are a couple of things where you can see he's still a bit new. There's a very weird shot where he's he's gone back to the TARDIS, he's dropped off the uh, the visualizer circuit, whatever it is, and then he just walks towards the camera and stares a bit blankly. And I'm not sure why that scene is there. I'm not sure why. Like, why don't why don't they have him looking over his shoulder and realizing there's a hidden door and he could just walk through there? Or it's just a very strange. It's just hanging there. And my suspicion is that it's not necessarily a critique of Matthew, but it is a critique of the director because he's not for a lot of these stories he's not getting any guidance and i th- like me bonnie langford had the same sort of thing they go oh yeah i'm a guest director you're a regular so you know what you're doing i don't need to bother with you but they're forgetting that these are young performers who are very inexperienced and they need a bit of guidance so right. whenever people have a, a hard time on you know matthew waterhouse i think he's really badly done too i think he's really really badly looked after um He's only done one of the TV show, and he only had a small part in that. Um, and I, th- I think there are moments of brilliance with Adric. I really do like the character. You know, I, I don't, I don't hold with this idea that he was a terrible companion because his job is to make mistakes and get into trouble, and, and that's exactly what he does. And I think Matthew Waterhouse does it really well. Things get bad for him in season nineteen, where he's recast as the antagonist. But as Tom Baker's psychic, especially in Keeper of Trocken and Legopolis, I think he gives a terrific performance as the Doctor's apprentice. He and Tom Baker, no matter what was going on behind the scenes, they have very good chemistry on camera. Apparently, it was during this um, recording where Matthew Waterhouse stood up for himself for the first time. Apparently, swore very loudly at Tom Baker and, and told him to stop misbehaving and then tom just stopped misbehaving but refused to speak to him apart from when he's got dialogue (laughs) so it kind of backfired on him but yeah it's it's funny the way they they think um oh let's make adric the cause of drama because he he is a little bit of a snot-nosed git in in season 19 he is horrible especially to the I, i suppose he he likes the idea of having this mentor you know he's he's lost um he's lost his original mentor and then he's got a new one. He's got, he's got he's got the doctor, and then the doctor regenerates, and then all these girls turn up, and all, all of his special time with his tutor has been eroded because of the stupid questions that the other two are asking. Um, he's a very petty and jealous young man by the, by season nineteen, which becomes very clear in part one of Earthshock. Uh, so the last member of the guest cast that I wanted to talk about before we move to the book. So Alan Rowe is playing the most hapless of the four deciders that we get on television and you wouldn't know that he's meant to be hapless because he has this impressive mane of silver hair he looks like a decider even if he doesn't behave like one 
Alan Rowe's partner was Jeffrey Bailden, who had appeared on Doctor Who a year earlier. I can only imagine the conversations that they were having at home. Uh, Alan Rowe goes, I've been cast on Doctor Who. I'm going to play a restrained, dignified, hesitant part. And Jeffrey goes, I've been cast on Doctor Who uh, to play an astrologer. I don't want to play. I'm going to play it very, very differently. <laughs> Two very different acting acting styles out of the same household. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I love that part as well because he's he's another one. He's, he's a ditherer, but he, it's you can see the intelligence in the performance. It's not like um, he's just delivering the lines. They're all thinking about we are frozen with indecision because we're aware of the the, the truth of this lie that everyone is is um, believing. We know that the mission to get the Starliner working is a lie. And, and also, I think there's a suggestion in the book that they, they don't really want the Starliner to succeed because if they do, they know that they won't be deciders for much longer because if they ever get to Pterodon, the Pterodonians are going to look at them and go, you're idiots. <laughs> the novelization makes clear that Gareth is going to be the last first decider and they're going to move to a democratic system of elections when they make planet fall the joke being that andrew smith evidently wrote an epilogue for this book which has the same ending as the 1980s contemporary tv movie from america escape from gilligan's island where at the very end they wind up back shipwrecks on the same island that they escaped from two hours earlier so the style item was going to crash somewhere else. And I believe JNT is said to have nixed that ending because it wasn't on television and it was perhaps a little too comical. So one can imagine that first decider Gareth was not going to do a very good job after their planet fall at the end of part four. This is all part of my big grand theory. I'll be honest with you. It's, um, they, they don't know how to fly the ship and they've lost part of the manual and the bits that they did have just been trashed by the marshmen. And the doctor sort of turns on his on his heels and says, "Okay, I'll help you fly the ship." He doesn't teach them how to land it. And um, yeah, I'll I'll get into this. Basically, this entire story comes about, and it's explained better in the book. It comes about because a spaceship goes to a planet it shouldn't go anywhere near, because they've had loads and loads of. Um, expeditions to explore it and they've never come back and they've sent probes and the probes have never come back and they shouldn't go anywhere near this planet and for whatever reason they're crash landing this ship crash lands on a planet where the dominant species are reptiles and then the, the, the book suggests that there are no survivors because they're attacked by these reptilian people now, animals don't just attack for territorial reasons, which makes me think that all of those Pterodonians were eaten. Ugh. Every single one of them. And you can imagine the marshman going, oh, have a little bit of this one, because this one got burned in the crash and he's really tasty. <laughs> Get a bit of uh, river fruit sauce on top of him. It would be amazing. So they've ingested all of the Pterodonians. There's not a single survivor. We're supposed to think at the beginning that these are the ancestors of Adric's people. And then we find out later on that, no, no, they were, they were all consumed in some sort of a Donna party frenzy. And then 
presumably because the the ecology or the the, the environment and on this planet is really weird and everything moves at a very fast pace and we're told repeatedly the marshmen are incredibly adaptable now i don't know whether it's a suggestion that um you are what you eat you know like we're i think we we share some dna with potatoes human beings as well and you know i think we're, we're closer to a potato than we are to a chicken it's quite weird I was at the Smithsonian in D.C. this past weekend, the National Museum of Natural History, and there was actually a DNA flowchart on the wall during the evolution section. And I saw this with my own eyes the other day. I may have a photo on my phone. We sh- 60% of our DNA is the, DF- is, is the DNA of a banana. So that means anytime you eat a banana, it's quite possibly cannibalism. Yep. <laughs> so... It, my theory here is that the the marshmen have consumed all the pteridonians, and we've got examples of this throughout Doctor Who, like the Wirren do this um, when when a, a, a being is is infected and they they inherit or, or they're consumed or whatever, and they inherit the memory of the the person that they've they've eaten. So it's possible that the the marshmen, the marsh people, become land people. They've inherited this thing of we know that the Starliner is important. And over 4,000 generations, they've had wave after wave where they've stayed on the land. They've become adapted and become more human-like because they've adapted to the environment. And then Mistfall comes and they're wiped out by another generation of marshmen. And then they go back to the swamp, make more little marsh babies. And then the next generation come out. And then... Over all these thousands of years, this is just happening and goes full circle again and again and again. And part of this is that they've got this drive to fix the Starliner without necessarily knowing how to take off. Um, and we see that in a sort of microcosm with Adric, because Adric is always drawn to technology that he has no knowledge of at all, and he always makes mistakes. And the final irony of Adric. Um, crashing well actually I'll, I'll, I'll phrase it this way they don't know how to fly that ship and the doctor with romana's help realizes that these people have now evolved to an extent where they're in a danger to the ecology of the planet so the right thing is to restore the natural order and help them get off the planet but he also knows that they can't go to pterodon because they won't be accepted they'll be shot down or they'll be killed or, or they'll just crash the ship so getting them off the planet is the only goal Getting them to Pterodon is not part of the, the, the deal. So I'm wondering whether, you know, the thing of in uh, Megalos, there's the line, the Doctor sees the threads that bind the universe together and mends them when they break. Yes. And, and in the modern series, there's the idea that he sees the possibilities in all the timelines and he knows which things are fixed points in time. So whether it's some sort of intuitive psychic thing or whatever it is, he looks at the Alzarians and goes, you guys are fated. You're not going to be here. And even Adric gets a sense of it when he says, I don't know where I'll be. I just won't be here. Right. So let's say that they are destined to crash their ship just as the original ship crash landed on them, which means that the doctor might be aware that it doesn't matter what he does. They're not going to survive. So it doesn't really matter so long as he gets them off the planet. And then he finds that Adric is stowed away on the TARDIS. And he feels responsible because this lad should have died in that crash. And then Adric 
crash crashes a ship onto a planet where the dominant species is reptiles. So he comes full circle. And the Doctor oh. knows that this was so inevitable that that's why he says to Nyssa and Tegan, let's move on. We can't mourn it. Because he's he's actually hiding a crushing disappointment that this was always going to happen. All right. First of all, this may very well be the last episode of Doctor Who literature. I do not think that theory could possibly be topped. My next comment is a two-part question. Number one, where do you get your ideas? Number two, why do you get your ideas? Final comment. <laughs> <laughs> I think you may have broken my show. Um, <laughs> I mean, the punchline to that is I'm suggesting that this is Doctor Who's attempt at a... Um, I mean, some people might say, has Andrew Smith been inspired by the film Alien? Had he seen it by that point? Because you have a creature that starts off as a kind of spider type thing, and then right. and then it takes the form of whatever it's it's uh, in, you know been growing inside of. Right. Um, but also, Cannibal Holocaust was a, a big film, <laughs> and this film feels a bit like a cannibal snuff movie, but done at tea time. <laughs> Only in a much more polite sense, but there are. When Adric has his final episode on Earthshock, there are two visual call, well, one visual, one auditory callback to Full Circle. You have the Adric theme playing on the soundtrack. Mm. And I believe Peter Grimwade had directed both of them. So Peter Grimwade is coming Full Circle. And the last thing Adric does is he's playing with Varsh's belt, the Outlaw's badge. So the end of Earthshock does come full circle to full circle, but you're saying that not just visually and music cue-wise, it is the plot. Adric kills off the dinosaurs because that's what he was fated to do because the Pterodonians always come full circle. Yeah. So that ties in with that missing epilogue as well. Um, I mean, I I don't know whether Andrew Smith is actually suggesting that the Marshmen ate all of those people. Um, but doesn't it seem likely? Doesn't you know if animals are attacking, they're, they're attacking for food. They're not just attacking for territory. Plus, you've got tasty pterodonians there, barbecued and, and sizzling on the on the grill. So, <laughs> you know, it'd be a terrible waste not to eat them. Um, the book does fill in a lot of background detail about the civilization of the starliner of the starliner inhabitants. It does not actually go into the cannibalism element. But if you're talking about the animal kingdom, another thing we saw at the Smithsonian was the extinction of the dinosaurs and they actually show you the kt boundary which is the exact moment where the asteroid i.e captain briggs's freighter crashes into the earth you can see it in a cross-section uh, of earth kept at the smithsonian and all i could think of is i'm looking at adric's remains <laughs> spread across the kt boundary when you're looking at a piece of rock and you see a, a reverse imprint of adric's face crushed into it I actually had taken a photo of a skull of Homo sapiens, and I posted it on my Twitter the other day with the, with the famous Tom Baker speech from Ark in Space, as much of the speech as I could remember without looking it up and cutting and pasting. But I also took a montage of rocks in the Gemstone Hall at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, and I wanted to post four of those photos on the same tweet and go, ooh, look, rocks, which is another <laughs> Tom Baker quote. So. I am not capable of walking through a history museum without making references to at least three other Doctor Who stories. So I, I am clearly a lost cause. So let's talk about something really interesting. George Baker. I know him as the voice of James Bond. 
I know him from this story. I think he gives an amazing performance. What I didn't know until I read the Wikipedia is that his granddaughter is the writer who just got the new ongoing James Bond license. The next three James Bond novels are being written really? by George Baker's granddaughter. One of them is about to come out in a few weeks. So that's a pretty fascinating bit of Doctor Who DNA. It's almost as if it's coming full circle, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> See, I'm looking forward to it. I will post a link to that in the show notes. The uh, George Baker progeny, who is now the, the official James Bond writer with the movies currently on hiatus. Uh, we haven't left a lot of time to talk about the novelization itself. And of course, I have the audio essay coming back on the other side of the break. But... I think for a book written by a 20-year-old, uh, there's a couple of run-on sentences. I think this is a very good book with lots of ideas, and it adds a lot of extra characterization to the tertiary characters, which you don't always get in one of your shorter, uh, for example, Terrence Dix novelizations. How does this novelization land for you? I really like it. Um when I did my top 10, I can't remember if I, I listed this in the top 10, but if it's not top 10, it's it's 11 or 12. It's, it's very good. Um, I just say that some of the sentences, I mean, the first, the prologue. Oh, by the way, there's a prologue. Love a prologue. Yes. Um, two prologues. There's two prologues. Well, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the first three paragraphs are three sentences. It's a, it's a, a paragraph per sentence. But the way he he constructs the sentences are beautiful where it's he's giving you detail and he gives you a punchline um i love the bit when they're talking about uh commander lorenzil who's just taken over command of the ship as is the uh the 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 uh the routine and his crew is dying all around him and then we're told the blackness came and lorenzil's last thought in life was that he was going to survive the crash after all and he doesn't <laughs> And I want to point out that Peter Grimwade, who directed this and directed Earthshock, later comes to write a novelization for Planet of Fire. You cannot tell me that the prologue for Planet of Fire does not find some inspiration in this book, because it's almost the exact same prologue. Yeah, it is. And, of course, that means that we've got a, a story like this that introduces a male companion, and then a story like that that writes a male companion companion out with this, the same basic idea. Um, coming from a situation with a, a, a crash of a spaceship. So you might say that Peter Grimwade is also taking us full circle. He's, yeah, we're going to be doing this again and again. There's so, <laughs> there's so much that does. It's, you know, it's, quite, um, you know, it's quite a closed circle. I was thinking about the um, in the book as well, the way we're told that it's a passenger ship. The Starliner is a passenger ship. I don't think that really comes across on TV. I don't think the, the sets look like... It looks like it's a building. It doesn't look like it's a spaceship to me but um the fact that it's a passenger ship and when they come under attack from the the marsh people they don't have any weapons it's not a military ship so they have to arm themselves with knives tools bits of pipe um which is quite handy because then when the marshmen eat them they could probably use the knives to carve a bit up couldn't they <laughs> but the, the, that's why when we see the um the descendants they still haven't developed weapons because they didn't have weapons in the first place so they've got all this science they've got all this, they can they they've got microscopes they've got they've got technology which is compatible with a tardis for some reason um because that's why Adric steals that circuit for the doctor 
Um, but they they haven't developed weapons of any kind. So on page 120, Gareth, the Alan Rowe character, says, this is a colony-class ship. We could program it to find a place. So they are meant to be colonizers, but not of the conquering variety because there there are no weapons. They do have the knife, but the knife quickly disappears once the Marsh Child discovers it, I believe. And that's that's a knife as a, as a tool, really, isn't it? For it's carving not... river fruit. Yeah. Now that also begs the question, if the river fruit are the eggs for the spiders, does that mean that the Starliner inhabitants are eating spiders all this time because the book makes clear that the river fruit is the staple of their diet. Now, ordinarily, you would need protein in your diet. That's the protein. These uh, river fruit are actually spider eggs. It's not exactly caviar, is it? But I think the the (laughs) suggestion is that... uh, Because caviar is disgusting as well. Um, The suggestion is that the spiders only appear when mistfall is coming because there's that whole thing of um, strange creatures that are going to arrive... Um, and I love the fact that, um, I can't remember which character it is, but one of them says, um, it's, it's a spider-like creature. And you think, I know that's for our benefit, but how do they know what a spider-like creature looks like if the creatures only turn up every 50 years? What's the comparison there? It's like, do you, do you, so presumably, cause they've got all that web around, they do have spiders. Um, but they these are weird spiders because, um, the spiders that make you glow in the dark and go a bit weird and, and turn you into a kind of marshman uh, with yes. one bite. And can I just say, aren't they really good, those spiders? They actually get more to do in the novelization. They are able to... There's a whole attack sequence in the novelization. I'll get to this after the break. that does not appear on television. So there was a limit to what the props could achieve in 1980. But the... It's obviously done a little bit in slow motion, but the scene where Lala Ward is holding up a river fruit as a weapon, and it cracks in half like an egg, and a fully formed spider jumps out, bites her on the neck. Cue the cliffhanger. That's a really, really disturbing moment in a story that you've now clued me in. is full of very disturbing moments that aren't quite obvious to the naked eye. And of course, you know, you know the river fruit being the home of the egg, and that's where the spider comes from, and that's, again, a bit like the egg in Alien. And we have a similar thing of a spider-like thing jumping out of the egg onto someone's face. And onto whose face does the spider alien jump out of the egg onto in the original alien, (laughs) but... The war doctor. (laughs) John Hurt. John Hurt. And for the last time in this hour, I think we can say, Jim, we've come full circle. Let's quickly get to a game of 20 questions because we had a new all-time 20 questions champion last week. And I want to see if you can break the new week old record or Conrad is back in a couple of weeks. Will you leave it to Conrad to reclaim his crown? I am a single Doctor Who serial between 1963 and 2022, drawn at random from the archives, the randomizer.net, a product of the Flight Through Entirety podcast. In 20 yes or no questions, Jim, what story am I? Well, I'll tell you now, I'm not going to try and break that record because when I was listening to that episode, I actually screamed out loud. (laughs) Oh my God, that's amazing. Um, That was partially my fault. I knew that when I picked Silver Nemesis, I knew that it was one of Mark's favorite stories. 
And I had made a reference the week before when I was drawing the episode that, ooh, next week's guest is going to love this. Fortunately, Mark had not heard the episode and was not aware of that comment. But when I gave him a chance to make one guess from the 1980s, I should have known that was the story he was going to pick. That was so amazing. So um, my first question, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to phrase this in a different way to the way everyone asked this, but it's, it's the same question. Was this story originally broadcast in a ratio of 4-3? No, this story was not broadcast in a ratio that is 4-3. And I've got to say that's brilliant, because by getting a yes to that question, Jim, you have knocked out several decades' worth of Doctor Who at once. That is probably the most brilliant first question that I've heard on this show. Because that would be every single classic story plus the um, the TV movie. That's just a way of getting them out there. However, oh no, it's a modern story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had at last, Jim. At last, I've cut you down to size. Oh wait, that's next week's episode. <laughs> I had a really good strategy. If it was an old story, <laughs> I had a fantasy <laughs> of getting it in four. Um, oh man, so it's a modern man. Oh my, all, all my dreams of conquest shattered. Uh, okay, no, it is not the horns of Nymon. <laughs> <laughs> We've already ruled that out. I've eliminated that. Okay, so question two. Um, how to divide this in half. Was this story during the Stephen Moffat showrunning era? No, this story is not during the Stephen Moffat showrunning era. Question three. <sighs> how do I divide that? So it's either, is it a Jodie Whittaker story? Yes, yes, it is a Jodie Whittaker story. And we've had a lot of Jodie Whittaker stories on 20 Questions, even though she makes up only a small fraction of televised Doctor Who. Maybe there's a flaw in the way that Nathan and company have programmed the randomizer.net. But yes, it is a Jodie story. Question four. Um, this is where I might struggle because um, <laughs> my autism has got all the old stuff in my head already programmed, but I don't have the new episodes in my head. So I'm going to ask... Was this broadcast as a special? So outside of a normal series run? No, it was not broadcast as a special. So that rules out about five stories right there. Okay, question so, five. So question five. This is the point where you could, with one wild guess, tie Mark for the crown, or you could play the long game and try and get it the more traditional way. Well, I can I can whittle it down to... Uh, is it Flux? No, it is not one of the Flux stories. You, you, you've whittakered it down a little bit. <laughs> Question six. That also reveals that y you would have considered Flux as individual episodes, whereas I would, I would have been aiming for it to be a story and then go, I've just got it, if, if it had been that. But The same way that I think of Trial of a Time Lord as four discrete adventures, I consider the Flux to be six different episodes. Okay. Um, oh... Does this story have a proper noun in the title? Uh, I'm going to say no to that. So, okay. for example, it is not the Battle of Ransk or of Skolos. It is not Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. That sort of thing is what I mean by a proper noun. Good. We've now eliminated the episodes that I don't know the names of. And I should have said the Battle of Rumpelstiltskin, which is, which is my pet name for that story. That, Question seven. That would have been fun. Um, oh, crikey. Is it from Jodie's first season? 
Yes, it is from Jody's first season. Question eight. Um, is it set on Earth? Yes, it is set on Earth. Question nine. That doesn't narrow it down as well as I'd hoped. Especially if this had this been the RTD era, is it set on Earth? Yeah, yes, it really wouldn't <laughs> help. Doesn't narrow it down at all. <laughs> Question nine. Is it set in the present day of Earth? Yes, it is set on present day Earth in Jody's first season. Question ten. Is it the woman who fell to Earth? Yes, it is. The <gasps> woman who fell to Earth. Excellent. <laughs> I'm you got it at the halfway. You got it at the halfway point. That's very good. I should point out that I, I I asked a while back for an intern who could help me go back and do a twenty question scorecard. My intern is the same person as my producer and my logo designer, Jim Sangster. You did a phenomenal job of going back. You should get hazard pay for having to listen to my voice that many hours in a row. Not at all. And you have given me a twenty question scorecard. 10 out of 20 is definitely a good performance. I'm happy with and that. And you are much better than the AI, which... Uh, that was the amazing, only, The wasn't only it? person to fail was, was the AI. That was that was my goal. I, you know, I thought, I'm not going to try and get competitive because that that way lies madness. Um, but I, I want to be better than AI. <laughs> but you know what? To get to that point with a with a Jodie Whittaker story, I'm really happy with that because I genuinely don't have all the episode titles in my head and I would have been struggling. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm very happy with that. Plus, I've introduced some new questions for your your future guests to have a go at. A different a different way of saying, is it a classic story? <laughs> next time I am a guest on my own show, and the next time that I play twenty questions, that's going to be my lead. Was it was it broadcast in four three? And then I was going to say, was it broadcast in um, four or five line? <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's so. Was it a story? Wholly broadcasting for it, so that's everything prior to Enemy of the World. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Is the Doctor's face in the opening credits would be another good question. That's very good. Is it episode or part? Yeah, yes, that would rule out everything except for Destiny of the Daleks from 1974 onward. <laughs> A fact I learned this evening when you told me that earlier. <laughs> the randomizer has now been reloaded, and my next guest to play this game, which may not be next week is going to have a jolly old time, and if they take some of your advice in mind, that may help them narrow things down considerably. Excellent. So I actually do have a use other than being biodegradable. And being my logo designer slash producer <laughs> slash uh, show intern. All right, Jim, I cannot thank you enough, my friend. We're going to do this again very, very soon. Yes, we are. Thank you. I've, I've, I've had a lot of fun tonight. <laughs> Despite some technical issues, I've had a lot of fun. <laughs> All right, next time I see you, we'll be in 16 by 9. Have a great night. And you. Take care now. Doctor Who, Full Circle, by Andrew Smith. Televised as Full Circle. Teleplay by Andrew Smith. Televised in October and November 1980. Published in September 1982. Cover artist Andrew Skiller. Romana has been recalled to Gallifrey by the Time Lords, a summons that cannot be ignored, despite her extreme reluctance to give up the freedom and excitement life as the Doctor's companion has brought. The time traveler's course is set, the flight path is clear, estimated time of arrival on Gallifrey is in 32 minutes, and then the unexpected happens. The full significance of their temporary loss of control over the TARDIS is only gradually brought home to the Doctor, for it is not on Gallifrey that they land, but on the Terra planet Alzarius, 
and at a time when the legendary Mistfall comes again, when the giant scaly creatures that inhabit the planet's swamps leave the marshes and go on the rampage, leaving a trail of death and destruction in their wake. We lose an old friend to Doctor Who with the release of this novelization. The word and. Last month's Doctor Who and The Visitation, episode 70 of this podcast, was the last novelization to link Doctor Who and the episode title with the word and. From now on, with one throwback exception in a couple of months, from now on, and the becomes a dash. Full Circle is one of my favorite TV stories. Yes, I say that about almost all of season 18, with the one glaring exception coming up in a couple weeks. But I love the plot, the storytelling, the cast, regulars, and the guests. Yes, even Adric in his debut story. I love the characters, the dialogue, the incidental music. And I love the fact this story was written by a teenager. Because this story, the book, too, gets pretty deep into human nature. Smith writes his four deciders, government, by inept old white men, with an authenticity that's hard to find even in writers who've been around politics for 30-plus years. This is one precocious script. With the novelization, Smith was closer to 20, which, of course, is still well under half my present age. And the book, too, is something special. The first paragraph, well, it is one of those epic run-on sentences that seem to be a staple, of the target novelizations after Terence Dix stops writing most of the book. Page 7. Twisting, burning metal screamed at a pitch which challenged the death yells of the passengers and crew members throughout the massive structure of the Starliner as the great space vessel hurtled out of control towards the shifting gray mists that enshrouded the surface of the terror planet Alzarius. Sorry, that was take four. I tried to do that in one breath. Not capable. Sorry. Never mind the run-on sentence. It's far from the last run-on sentence in the target annals. I appreciate the five-page prologue, a double prologue showing how the Starliner crashed on Alzarius 40 generations, or was it 4,000 generations, before the story takes place. We read about the stupidity of a Pteridonian named Fenric, Fenric with a K, who opens the Starliner doors after landfall, allowing the Marshmen to invade the ship. You could say that everything that happens in full circle is the result of the curse of Fenric. I mean, you could say that, but that would be pretty awful. Smith follows up the first prologue with an original poem, not seen in the targets since Doctor Who and the Sea Devils, all the way back in episode 9 of this program. The poem manages to quote both dialogue from the TV story, When Mistfall Comes, the Giants Leave the Swamp, and reference one of its working titles, The Planet That Slept. And, as with almost everything else on this program, I owe much to Jim Sangster for his epic performance of the poem in that cold open. And yes, when Mistfall comes, the giants leave the swamp is iambic pentameter. Full circle is only 117 pages long, 36 of which are devoted to part one, so many embellishments are found here. The first POV character in the book is Starliner Commander Lorenzel. Smith invests in this character, and then kills him on the second page. The equally short-lived Mr. Fenric thinks on page 8 that the Starliner quote would never fly again, in his lifetime at least. That's clever foreshadowing, as it will be 4,000 lifetimes before the Starliner finally does take flight again. On page 9, we learn that Selman, one of the original Starliner passengers, is a lawyer. Quote, Fenric hated lawyers. Ouch! 
Hey, now. I have a lawyer acquaintance named Selman. She's fabulous. Chapter 1 starts from Romana's POV. Smith, despite his tender age, immediately gets into the emotional angst of Romana's imminent departure. Page 13. Would she see him again, after Gallifrey? The face was at once immensely cheerful, and yet tinged with the sadness of one who has known too many people for too short a time. The lines on his face were deep, each one relating a story to her. She would miss him. On page 14, the doctor smiles when he remembers Leela. Page 18 also sees Romana suffer a pang of despair, believing she's about to leave the TARDIS for the final time. Quote, So much had happened to her in this room. The smile, prompted by her recollections, gave way under a renewed surge of despair. End quote. This is a new type of target writing. The characters' inner emotional lives, not just their reactions to the plot or action. Smith also three times repeats the line in italics, a Time Lord summons cannot be ignored. This book wants to be a full-length novel where characters survive emotional pain, survive love and loss. The hero's journey isn't always a happy one. In the end, he or she is richer for the experience. On page 18, the Doctor tells Romana that coming home isn't the end of the universe. That's more foreshadowing because that's literally what just happened. They're in a new universe. Chapter 2, among minor tweaks to the TV scripts, adds a longer introduction to the three deciders, the first three deciders, introduced together in the science unit. On TV, we meet decider Draith, and then Nefred and Gareth separately. The book also tells us about how Starliner babies are EEG'd at birth and separated out into norms and elites. Smith dips into the emotional states of Adric and Varsh as well. Page 24 is Adric's autobiography, though it's short. Quote, Anything was better than spending the rest of his life in the predictable, sterile environment of the Starliner, he told himself, unconsciously echoing Romana's sentiments towards Gallifrey. Adric's diminutive stature and his youth belied the fact that he had one of the keenest intelligences on the Starliner, an intelligence marred only by the occasional lapse into the naive mannerisms of the juvenile. Adric was an elite among elites, outstanding in all the fields of education he had undertaken. He wore the star of mathematical excellence on his tunic breast pocket. Very few of them had ever been awarded. On page 25, where Varsh says he's broken all family ties with Adric, Smith writes, quote, he said, looking at Adric and hoping he knew, he didn't mean it. Adric also puts up much more of a fight trying to save Decider Draith. Doesn't quite look that way on television. And in the book, a marsh man's hand grabs his ankle from under the water, which might well have been an influence on young Stephen Moffat. Two extra outlers, Hector and Yannick, appear on page 33. One of them even survives. Well, to the top of page 34, at least. Two very minor TV characters named Amril and Rysik, who'd gotten a few lines of dialogue in part one, though are never named on television, and you have to have the shooting script in hand to know which is which, are minimized. Amril does show up later in the book, and so does a character named Rock, R-O-K, neither of whom require any emotional attachment. Two other extra outlers, Refnal and Gulner, get a new scene in the book as they reluctantly rejoin the Starliner. The book also splits Nefred and Gareth for a couple of scenes. In the book, it is Gareth alone who approaches a despondent Logan about Kira's presumed death, and there's a nifty scene where Nefred is initiated by the Starliner computers as first decider and reads the system files. You could argue that Smith overwrites, 
telling us that Nifred is shocked at the system files data, telling us that Romana is shocked at Adric's fast healing. These lines are a bit tell-don't-show, but again, these are forgivable excesses for the target line. More happily, the rapid-fire TV dialogue that I love so much. Cy and I talked about this back in, back in episode 68, The Leisure Hive. I love Tom Baker's season 18 reinvention. Is all present in the book, pretty much word for word. Well, it was old, and there was a door. No, there were two doors, and they opened inwards. And there was something funny about them. Handles weren't on the same level. Quite right. When inside it, it's called a TARDIS. This boy's not hallucinating. How's your transcendental dimension? Never mind about that. Come on, K9. Where are you going? Well, to the marsh. We can't stand around here theorizing. The boy convinces me. Yeah, but we still haven't worked out what's wrong with this. What's wrong with what? Oh, the console. The scanner. Oh, that. Yes. That recurring image of Gallifrey. Well, wow. something really quite simple. The image translated reads the absolute values of the coordinates. Of course it does. Real space doesn't have negative coordinates. Nefred is one of my favorite Doctor Who guest characters, although I'm willing to bet that I'm one of the very few people who think that way. Nefred is almost unique in Doctor Who annals, a corrupt, incompetent leader, but with a conscience and good intentions. Nefred was inhabited perfectly by James Bree, last seen as a space Nazi in the war games, and last heard via Jim Sangster's impression earlier in this show. In full circle, Bree gives a worried, measured performance, Smith gives him terrific dialogue, and Bree delivers every syllable perfectly. In a novelization where all 12 chapters are named for lines of dialogue, two of those lines belong to Nefred. Nefred almost serves as a second narrator. We get not only the extra system file scene, but in Chapter 4 we experience his disorientation at being inside the power room of the Starliner, not a set built for television, and his apprehension and fear that Logan will not agree to join the Deciders. Later on, we feel Nefred's remorse for his inept stewardship of the Starliner after the Marshmen invade. A lot of guest characters jockey for attention in full circle, but Nefred makes his mark. And I really do love that Smith in the book takes the time to give us this character's inner life, well, parts of it, which James Brees certainly did show on television. Tylos, well played on TV by Bernard Padden, whose name Jim dropped earlier, doesn't get his own POV scenes, but is shown as a psychopath in training, wide-eyed, gleeful, a face with madness in it, Smith says on page 47. But more than giving his characters emotional lives, Smith also turns his attention to more tactile things, the five senses, like Ian Martyr did. In chapter 4, the Doctor tastes Mistfall to determine that it's non-toxic, Romana can smell that the outlers who live in a cave with no running water haven't been brushing their teeth. Gross, by the way. On page 53, the doctor takes a moment to admire the engineering aesthetics of the Starliner. James Couray Smith, on his substack a couple of weeks ago, wrote about the Apollo ethic of Space Age Doctor Who, a run of stories from the Tenth Planet through the Ambassadors of Death that mirrored the American Apollo space program and then observed how shortly after that, when America stopped going to the moon, spaceships on Doctor Who lost their realism. I doubt if Smith's engineering ideas about the Starliner's design really would help with thrust or maneuverability, but he certainly writes with an Apollo space ethic. Link in the show notes. On page 54, Smith uses the phrase capacious pockets 
That's it. That's the tell. That's how you know Smith was a fan of the show. I think it was Paul Mars in his afterward to the late 1990s Eighth Doctor Adventure story, The Scarlet Empress, who expounded on this topic. You know who grew up a Doctor Who fan based on whether or not they use the word capacious via the novelizations of Malcolm Hulk and Terence. And on page 56, Smith gives us a fan theory about why, at least from the Tom Baker era onwards, the TARDIS doors open onto a black void rather than onto the adjoining set, as seen between an unearthly child and pyramids of Mars. It is, quote, the spatio-temporal void, pitch black, which lay between the TARDIS's inner and outer doors, end quote. Chapter 5 departs from the TV script, Nefred's wonderfully delivered speech about the history of the Pteridonians on Alzarius and his exhortation to continue the work of maintenance is not in the book. Amril, named in the book if not on television, does not knock the doctor out, but rather escorts him to the deciders in the great book room. I like the doctor's reflection while waiting that being left alone in the dark is, quote, a very effective psychological ploy to make him feel inferior and paranoid. And we learn that the doctor speaks in a booming voice in order to gauge the size of the room around him. Smith also does not include the bit on TV where all the deciders say their names one at a time, and then the doctor chimes his own name in joyfully. That is the sort of Tom Baker genius that works better on TV than it would on the printed page. Probably. The Doctor has two intense confrontations with the Deciders, one in Part 2, and an even better one in Part 3, again putting the lie to the long-running fan myth that Tom was just, quote, phoning it in in Season 18. Smith presents this material as is from the script with one slight addition. On page 63, he explores the Doctor's habit of using human analogies in conversations with aliens. The Doctor makes a football pitch joke and then realizes, quote, the deciders had no conception of what a football pitch was, and did not appreciate the humor. In a slight bit of narrative shuffling, a Doctor, Dexeter, and Logan scene from Part 3 in Dexeter's laboratory, pardon the pun, is moved up to Chapter 6 within the Part 2 material. Smith, for all his focus on the character's inner thoughts and feelings, always has time for a disturbing image. On page 71, after the Marshmen have beheaded K-9, a spider crawls out from inside canine through the neck. <laughs> Good luck on seeing that. Smith repeats the image on page 77, in a not-on-TV moment, where a mass of giant spiders attack the Doctor and Adric, where the Doctor has to swipe all the spiders from canine's body. On TV, they just disappear as a threat as soon as they attack Romana. Chapter 7 also differs slightly from the TV, and that the Doctor more openly believes that Kira's cry of father is meant for him, and is missing the surely ad-libbed bit about the Doctor having to teach Adric how to cross his fingers, and missing Tom Baker's delightful, very good, when Adric finally figures it out, one of my many favorite line readings from this episode. The brief TARDIS scene in Chapter 8 converts entirely into prose what was spoken in dialogue on TV, the Target books will do a lot more of that in this post-Terence Dix era. See next week's Logopolis for more of that. Smith dips back into Nefred's thoughts as he ponders a, quote, irrevocably dangerous course of action. Query. Does Nefred authorize Dexeter's experiments on the Marsh Child, knowing that the enraged creature will kill Dexeter and thus ensure his silence for all time? 
and needing to trim material to make the book fit its page count. With part one running so long, the part three material is barely 22 pages. Two TV scenes with the deciders in the science unit is condensed into one, both in chapter eight. All the dialogue between the outlers while awaiting their trial is deleted. Instead, Smith expands the surgery scene where the Marsh child awakens and kills Dexeter. We learn here that the creature is fighting against animal instinct, perhaps trying to discover a latent humanity. And its tragic death, trying to reach the doctor through the monitor screen, plays a little better with these longer explanations. Page 83. The room was a mess, with instrumentation lying scattered and broken all over the floor. In its center stood the diminutive marsh child, crouched, breathing heavily, head lowered, its snarls slowly gradually giving way to quiet, melancholic whimpers. Blood dripped from the gashes in its arms. Quietly, the creature watched itself bleed. The sounds it made were like a weeping child, but no tears spilled from its black eyes. The doctor was proud for the creature. It had won its battle with itself. And now, the audio of one of my favorite scenes in all of Doctor Who. You deciders allow this to happen? The marsh creatures are mindless brutes, animals! Yes. Easy enough to destroy. Have you ever tried creating one? We were within our rights. One might argue that Dexeter was overzealous. Not an alibi, deciders! You three are supposed to be leaders. Certainly we are. Though, of course, uh, Nefred is, uh, is now first decider. Then Nefred is responsible. For the community, yes. No, no. Perhaps they haven't let you in on the secret, Logan. Shall I tell him, gentlemen? Secret? Yes, and the fraud. A perpetual movement. The endless tasks going round and round. Same old components being removed and replaced. No, Doctor, that's too harsh. The preparations are necessary. Preparations? For what? This Starliner isn't going anywhere. But the manuals promise us a journey to Teradon. Yes, but it must be made ready first. Ready? It's been made ready for centuries. Willful procrastination? Yes! The willful procrastination of endless procedure. You want to hold on to the old order. You understand a great deal, Doctor. True. But not everything. That's certainly true. You're standing in the great bookroom. These galleries contain manuals on the repair and maintenance of every single item on this ship. Everything is listed, down to the smallest rivet. Thanks to the manuals that have been passed down, we could take the Starliner apart and put it together again perfectly. Though there is one thing we can't do, Doctor. Uh? One secret our ancestors kept for themselves. What's that? Nobody knows how to pilot this ship. This is left word for word in the book, missing only Tom Baker's barely audible what, which might well have been an ad lib. Smith also omits two what's from a later scene where Adric tells the doctor that Romana is gone. 
Willful Procrastination of Endless Procedure, by the way, would be the name of my punk rock band. Smith does the impossible and improves on the scene by adding one detail from Nefred's point of view, that he still has one even bigger secret, which the Doctor has yet to guess. Well, until Part 4, anyway. The Part 4 material gets 31 pages, more than a quarter of the book's length, so Smith once again has room to expand. The TV Part 4 is shockingly brief, considering how long the Part 3 reprise runs. Tylos, who'd been set up as a latent psychopath in the earlier chapters, gets a hero's death on page 95 in a scene that Smith writes, such as for the reader to experience Tylos' death firsthand. It's pretty grim writing, even for the violence-happy target range. For a moment, Tylos was undecided. Then he committed himself. He sprinted across to the entranceway, grabbed Rock's arm, and pulled him out from in front of the marshman. Run! Tylos urged him. Tylos watched as Rock made his dash for safety of the passageways, and then the marshman's arm closed around the young hero's neck. Tylos felt himself being bent backwards by the creature, hardly able to breathe, totally helpless. Rock hesitated by the entrance to one of the passageways, considering Tylos's plight, his strong instinct for survival battling with his weak conscience. Casting the youngster from his thoughts, he turned and ran from the boarding area, just as fast as his legs could carry him. One great thing about Classic Who is that tertiary characters have a chance to act in strong scenes without the regulars. We don't see much of this in the new series. A brief moment between the three deciders early in Part 4 is well written, and stunningly acted. Here's the audio. Nifid, Garrett, we must close these bulkheads and these, and we must gather the citizens in here at once. Yes, I see the plan has some merit in it, and we must do it quickly. We must certainly respond to this crisis on a real-time basis, decided Logan, but appropriately. Decided Nifid is right, decided Logan. I have been consulting the histories of our relationship with the Marshmen. While a single defense response has a certain appeal, we must also consider the long-term consequences. It is not a defensive response. We need a holistic approach. I I wonder if you've had time to consult this manual on the peripheral unit power supplies. That the marsh creatures, though they rarely speak, are the possessors of intellect. Furthermore, they have amazing powers of adapting to new situations. Yes, their emergence from arts, for instance, breathing air through their gills. So you can see the difficulty. So you're suggesting that we do nothing? Well, nothing precipitate. Whatever measures we take, they will adjust. And that is your conclusion from all this knowledge. Do nothing. This knowledge and more. In the book, Smith makes even more clear just how inept Nefred and Gareth are, although they also know from their decider knowledge that the Marshmen are going to kill them no matter what, and James Bree and Alan Rowe are so sympathetic, even as bad leaders, that I kind of feel sorry for them anyway. Page 102. Logan did not reply. Did not see the point in replying. He stared at his two fellow deciders in mute astonishment, realizing the awful truth. They were both frozen into indecision by the first real crisis of their lives. They were incapable of coping with a problem of this size. Death is a given in Doctor Who, but not everyone gets a good death scene. The great death scenes are still quoted years later. Smith's treatment of Nefred's death, I think, works well, independently of how amazing I think James Bree was on television. Page 106 into page 107. In the lower deck area of the Starliner, Nefred lay in the shadows wheezing erratically, feeling his life slipping away from him. He could hear through dull ears the sounds of the escape hatchways being closed over, 
Logan's voice loud and authoritative as he directed the citizens in their tasks. Logan is a very good man, Nefred thought to himself. One day he will be a great man. He could hear Gareth, too, whimpering, complaining, panic-stricken. Gareth should never have been made a decider, Nefred considered. As an instructor of citizens, he had excelled. As a decider, he had proved useless. As you yourself, Regan Nefred, have proved useless, he told himself. You call yourself first decider. Yet when faced with a real crisis, all you can do is hesitate, wait for others to lead your decisions. Nefred was well aware that he was dying, and he was sorry that he would have no opportunity to redeem himself. The doctor even eulogizes Nefred on page 117 in non-televised dialogue. He was a good man, but, like most of you, a slave to the procedures. Varsha's death on pages 114 and 115 is just as strong as Nefred's, more so as Varsh dies a death of conscious heroism. Smith reflects on why the doctor does not openly grieve. Quote, this was no time for becoming lost in sadness and regret. Time enough to count the cost of their experiences later, if they were still alive. End quote. This echoes the doctor's TV philosophy, back to Pyramids of Mars, and all the way up through Mummy on the Orient Express. Now, we know from the DVD production notes that Full Circle as televised owes nearly as much to script editor Christopher H. Bidmead as it does to Smith's original storyline. Much of the hard science, I'm sure, comes from Bidmead, although Smith keeps the dialogue in the novelization. Now for a short course in cytogenetics. Definitely morphologically similar karyotypes. You could try gel electrophoresis, which, by the way, Lala Ward's million-watt smile makes this one of my favorite line readings from the entire series. In fact, in Lala's hands, that line turns into one of the great moral philosophies. Yes, in times of deep crisis, Lala implores us the only answer is gel electrophoresis. I'll follow you anywhere, Ramada 2. Anyway, the revelations from the TV story about who the Starliner inhabitants are and what happened 40 or 4,000 generations before land just as well in print as they did on TV. Now, not to say the story is perfect scientifically. Neither Smith nor Bidmead thought through the ramifications of having the Starliner crashing on Alzarius 4,000 generations or 100,000 years earlier. The total visible population of the Starliner is about 30, and they all fit back into the same ship after Mistfall comes. Yeah, no, genetics doesn't quite work that way. World Enough and Time is a much better example of what happens to population after dozens or hundreds of generations go by on one colony ship. Now, this is not corrected for the book, but at the same time, Smith gives extra motivation to the Marshmen, literally giving them the last word in an extra scene after they've finally been, even been driven out of the Starliner in Part 4. These Marshmen are no mere monsters, and they're certainly not the villains of the piece. Page 119. The people of the Marsh were frightened. They were aware of the threat posed by the non-people, like but unlike, unchecked, one day to spread across Alzarius and smother the planet with their foul, off-world technology. On Alzarius, all should be nature. This was the philosophy of the people of the Marsh. They existed to serve and to protect nature on this planet. They were the guardians of Alzarius, their lives dedicated to maintaining its purity from off-world corruption. The non-people... They who had once been guardians themselves had discarded this philosophy and had allowed the corruption of Offworld to infect them. One day, they would remove their corruption. As one, the creatures entered the marshlands, 
is sinking beneath its surface, disappearing under the murky slime, until it was as if no one had ever been there. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, my legit favorite story from season 18, one of my favorite books of all time, not just one of my favorite novelizations from Doctor Who, but one of my favorite books ever. Next week, we are going down under to be joined by some very good writer friends of mine to discuss Christopher H. Bidmead's own novelization of Doctor Who, Logopolis. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by yours truly. Our logo was designed by my co-producer, Jim Sangster. David Barsky also produces. Special thanks to my special guest, Jim Sangster. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.